Hello, listeners. Welcome to the Content Clearinghouse. I'm Brett Chisholm. And I'm Josh Evans. And on today's episode, I discuss my puzzling affinity for artwork that's been cut into really small puzzle-shaped pieces. On the content circuit, Josh needs some help rounding out his Netflix action trilogy, and then I shed some tears because Pixar. And then it's time for Josh to wax poetic with an epic tale about two boys and a rock. Get ready for Valley Uprising. Movies, shows, and video games. Podcast books and their acclaims. Let their favorite content become yours. It's the Content Clearing House. Content Clearing House. And it starts right now. Hey, Brett, for anyone that's new to the show, why don't you explain how it works? Yeah, the Content Clearinghouse, just like the theme song said, books, movies, podcasts, TV shows, any type of content is on the table. And each week, one of us gets into one of our absolute favorite pieces of content and uh, does a bit of a deep dive into it. And since uh, the world is not all consumable content, I mean, at least not yet, we also do an off-topic discussion at the beginning about something else that we're interested in. So... Something that I wanted to ask our listeners, uh, I, want you, I want to see if you guys are willing to go out and share the show with your friends. Uh, in the beginning, a brand new show like this, the audience telling their friends about it is very important. It's how we get the word out there. You know, if each one of you shares this show with one of your friends and they like it and they share it with one of their friends, we could exponentially grow our listenership. I know this sounds a lot like a network marketing scam, but I assure you, the only thing we're trying to trick you into is a sense of mirth and joy that you'll get from always consuming the best content. <laughs> so if you're willing to help us out, we would love that. Also, don't forget to uh, rate, review, and subscribe in your favorite podcast app. And another good thing to share right now is a hug. Oh, I, actually, <laughs> the CDC, I'm looking at their website now. It says, do not hug. Sorry about that. Do not hug. That is bad advice, Brett. It is. <laughs> Well, uh, yeah, let's go ahead and get into it, man. What do you have? You got something you want to discuss for the off-top today, right? Oh, yeah. I got something really good. Um, have you put together a lot of puzzles? Uh, the last puzzle I tried to do was a th- this thousand-piece Starry Night Vincent Van Gogh puzzle, and uh, we got like the border done. That was about as far as we could get. It was absolutely impossible. So I don't think I've gone as deep with puzzles as it sounds like you may have. Well, you know, before we get into what I really like about puzzles and just some interesting interesting things I uh, want to share about puzzles, I've noticed this really disturbing trend over the last month and a half besides the uh, trend that seems like life is slowly falling into disarray. Uh, But I seem to be doing things and then shortly after, like taking up new hobbies, say, I'll read a news article or just something online about how everyone else is doing the same new thing or new hobby that I'm picking up too. And it should, I feel like it should make me feel connected, but it just kind of makes me seem a little basic. Do you you have uh, any experiences like this? Like sourdough bread? Sourdough bread is a perfect example. (laughs) And that's one of those things where I, you know, um, this YouTube video popped up. Uh, I love cooking. 
and it's this Irish guy making sourdough bread. And, you know, I didn't search this out. So I, I have a feeling that there's, you know, some kind of like positive feedback loop or so many people are searching for sourdough bread baking because it's just like a good quarantine activity. But it just, it's so wild to think that everybody's doing this. I mean, you know, I, I was like, okay, this is a cool video. I want to learn sourdough bread. I go to the store and there's no flour because everybody is making sourdough bread. But I mean, that's not the only example. I mean, they're either making sourdough bread or they're making toilet paper cakes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I don't think that's a thing. <laughs> no. Oh, they must um, be doing something else with all the toilet paper then. Yeah. Sounds like what so. you're describing is the, the Beider Meinhof phenomenon. Have you heard that? Yeah, like but I, I don't think, though, that that's the case because if you were to Google right now, uh, it, but before I continue, why don't you explain that? Because that is an interesting phenomenon. That's It's like a, well, you know, they call it a frequency bias or an illusion. It's where something that you've learned about suddenly appears everywhere. And, you know, that definitely happens like when you hear things like in threes. I don't know, you'll hear like sourdough bread and then it seems like, two or three more times during the day, you'll keep hearing that. And, you know, part of it is that it's that bias or that illusion. Now that something is apparent in your mind, you know, like your brain is picking up on it, but it might go a little bit deeper than that with this because people staying at home, especially being pushed by social media. I think a lot of these like trends, sourdough bread, things like that, like those are being pushed on social media. So it probably does right. go a little bit deeper than that. Right. So I, that's, that was, that's kind of like my, my, um, my suspicion is that so many people kind of get interested in it and it kind of feeds into itself kind of like toilet paper hoarding. I mean, if you hear that there's toilet paper hoarding going on, you go to the store, you see there's not much toilet paper left. It kind of triggers like an anxiety response. Then you hoard the toilet paper, which kind of feeds into this system. So that's kind of how I feel like it probably is with sourdough bread. Uh, but like one of the weird things too is uh, I started growing a beard. Um, I think I started about a month ago. And then about two or three days afterwards, and this is this is why I suspect there's just like uh, these behaviors or these hobbies or these you know actions that sort of come out in a time like this, and they're even isolated from like a social media fueled positive feedback loop. I mean, this this uh, I think it was a New York Times. I don't know. I get this like daily email, but it was Wired magazine had an article about the psychology behind the tempting quarantine makeover. And it dives into uh, how common coloring your hair is or bleaching your hair or growing a beard for men. And it said it's a coping mechanism. So according to Oldstone Moore, who studies gender and hair at Wright State University, he said, beards are associated with warriors in ancient and medieval times. Hell yeah. And, and manliness. And at times like this, growing one can be a show of resilience. And psychologically, it can be a sort of declaration of fortitude and hardiness. Yeah, it's, uh, I mean, even starting a podcast kind of came to mind. Not a great example because you and I did start this podcast before the quarantine. We were working on this idea well before we knew this would, would happen. But all of a sudden, I hear about, and this is kind of anecdotal. I did try to search on the internet to see 
how many new podcasts were coming out. But didn't you say that um, like Amazon had sold out of all the microphones for podcasting and stuff I like that? I did see that, yeah. We definitely got in before the rush, luckily. <laughs> yeah, I feel like we did. So, I mean, this isn't a great example of it, but it is kind of ironic that we did launch and we did try to like speed up our launch a little bit. Um kind of because we had a little extra time on our hands and that I, I suspect is what fuels everybody else starting their podcast. Cause they've always wanted to just like you and I have always wanted to. And now they find themselves like locked inside. They only have so much flour, you know, they, they can only grow their beard so fast. So running start... out of toilet paper cakes. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> <laughs> so they start working on that, working on that, uh, podcast, but but the the other thing that I think is like a very, very common um, quarantine activity or like a, an activity that pops up time and again, very popular during the Great Depression and very popular now is puzzles. And it is some good quality analog content. So what are you doing? Are you... Are you is there anything special about the puzzles you're doing? Are they just kind of the standard, uh, what you think of when you think of a puzzle? Well, you know, that's a uh, interesting question because I don't think there really is like a standard puzzle because when you start to do a lot of puzzles, and this is something that I feel like Bree and I are pretty um, – avid puzzlers. I mean, it's, it's not like baking. I didn't just take up this hobby because I'm in the quarantine. We just started doing a lot more of them, uh, because it is such a great, uh, quarantine activity. And fortunately we have a bunch of puzzles because you cannot buy puzzles online right now. Everything is, I mean, it's all out of stock. It's all sold out because puzzles are so popular, but, um, you know, there are just like cheap, kind of crappy puzzles that I, I really feel like uh, I feel like for the layman or at first glance, the difference in puzzle quality between like a puzzle you get at Walmart for nine ninety nine and then like a little bit better of a brand, like it might seem um, insignificant, but when you really like are spending hours putting together a 500 piece puzzle, a thousand piece puzzle, a 1500 piece puzzle, those little differences matter a lot. So some of the puzzles or the puzzle manufacturers, the companies that we really like, uh, Ravensburger, and this is actually what kind of inspired me uh, to want to talk about this on this off top. There's this great clip I'm going to share in the show notes, and it's totally like a promo video for Ravensburger. But it's it just in like two minutes sums up how puzzles are made. And Ravensburger is, I mean, it's been a puzzle company for a long time. They're all about quality. They're super into like their German engineering. Um, and I actually, uh, we met this guy and we were like talking puzzles with this owner of a uh, game shop, like a toy store in Utah. And we were just talking about how we love different, you know, comparing different puzzles. And we were talking about Ravensburger and what a great company it is. And he actually mentioned, you know, they, they like, are so meticulous about their puzzles that when he had a customer have a missing piece, he 
and they called the customer called the Ravensburger company and they do say like you know if there's a missing piece call us we'll replace it all that and that's most puzzle companies but at first the customer service person on the phone in a thick german accent said have you checked your vacuum? Have you checked all <laughs> the rooms of your house? Have you checked the floor? It is impossible that is missing a piece. It is impossible. And I can't do a German accent. Nine, but. nine, nine. <laughs> I mean, it is. They they talk about how like the the puzzles fit together so perfectly, and they have this like coating on them. So when you put them together, they click into place. And Ooh. the video makes it sound a, a little bit cooler than it is because it doesn't like really have the satisfying ASMR click that you see in their promo video. But Ravensburger, they really are great puzzles. I, I love them. They um, must have another like company. A, uh, uh-huh. well, they must have like a uh, some sort of like coding system marking each individual piece like with a number and a letter for its coordinates in the puzzle right if you can just be like oh yeah this picture this piece is missing they go oh it's an r9 <laughs> yeah <laughs> i mean i'm sure you know it's the the like startup cost or like the initial cost for making puzzles i imagine is very high compared to once you have that die cut machine and you have the artwork selected. You have, you know, once once you're in business with Puzzle One, I'm sure it's just like pennies to produce puzzles after that. But all, everything leading up to that uh, is going to be like your pretty serious cost, especially when it's a Ravensburger. Uh, but Dowdle is another company that we really like, and it's kind of interesting because uh, I had bought my dad a an Eric Dowdle puzzle, I think like a Navy one or something like that. And we just, we had kind of heard, you know, heard that it was like a good company and uh, we had gotten one for ourselves. Well, I think it was about last year or uh, yeah, it was last summer in Heber city, Utah for this event called Swiss days. And guess who's there? Eric Dowdle. My wife no. and I were, were a little bit, uh, <laughs> I don't know who that bit. is. <laughs> We, um, I mean, he, he is a bit of a celebrity in the puzzle world. Is he the Actually, creator? He is. Dowdle yeah. Puzzles? So, yeah. So he's, he's an artist and that's pretty dope. It, it really, I mean, it, his art is, and once again, this is like where, you know, when you think of standard puzzle, th- there is no standard puzzle. Every kind of company has their own focus or their own skill set or whatever but Dowdle is the artist and he actually has a tv show uh it's called painting the town he's very famous for his folk art and his his style of art i mean i don't know if he had this idea or somebody that loved puzzles knew him but they just i mean his art is perfect for puzzles it just has lots of like fun details balloons animals people and it's always a t- it's like a place or a town not always i mean there's like a there's the armed services one so there's like the navy puzzle the coast guard puzzle but mostly you know it's denver colorado it's park city utah it's you know anywhere you can think of he does have like around the world but the little details the little buildings it's they're very very fun puzzles and they're not super challenging but they kind of hit that nice like somewhere between you know hard and easy that kind of puts you into that puzzle flow state Um, but we actually bought several 
puzzles that day to give as gifts to uh, friends and family that also like to do puzzles. And we got him to sign uh, the puzzle. Not we didn't. He didn't wait for us to put the puzzle together. <laughs> so I was going to ask. <laughs> yeah. Do you have sixteen hours to wait? But it was really cool meeting him. And we just like, I, you know, we actually knew who he was and we had done some of his puzzles and it, it's just like such a weird niche. Um, but uh, yeah, it was cool. Uh, there's a couple other companies too. True South Puzzle Company has, we just found it in like a little boutique type store and they have some like cool, weird maps. I think a big driving force for us is is the art because you're like, I don't know, you're trying to look at each individual piece and match these colors and match. And, you know, they, they the these cheap puzzles will do kind of these fun, like, stock image ones sometimes, like a bunch of ties or a bunch of colored pencils or something. But when you just jump up to that next kind of puzzle quality, it's usually going to be some kind of artist or designer that has really like done puzzles and is trying to figure out, you know, what's not just a pretty picture. What is a fun puzzle to do? Um, and so I, for me personally, that's like a big driving force of doing a puzzle. I mean, I, I want to do something that looks good when you put it together. Right. Cause you spend hours doing that thing. Have you seen the all white puzzle? I've been seeing you that know, going around lately. Yeah. I, it's uh there's one called the crypt um that might be the one you're talking about it it is they have it in different colors they have it in like a light gray uh white gradient um that is a ravensburger i think you can get it in black too but it looks uh, almost impossible i mean even the shapes are like kind of weird and it's got a round piece in the middle we actually really like this round puzzle that we have i don't know how to say the name of the puzzle it's like a Bagramians, I think, something like that. But it's cool to do a round puzzle. It's very colorful. I think it's a thousand pieces. Um, but some puzzles that I have eyed <laughs> online. Don't get too excited about them, Brett. Really thirstily. Um, th- these things are so cool looking. I, I don't own any of these, but one company that I found when I was just like getting really into puzzles a couple of years ago and, and was kind of interested on seeing what's out there. It's called the nervous system as the company. I think they sell a bunch of stuff, but I, I was only really interested in their puzzles, but it's really interesting. They call their puzzles generative jigsaw puzzles. Kind of the premise of this whole um, company is the guy went to MIT and is really into math and coding and math and nature. And they've written these different computer programs that are based on like patterns and, and processes that are found processes that are found in nature. And they use that code to create like fractal patterns and different types of, um, like for the artwork or for the, uh, the jigsaw. No, actually for the, for the for the cut oh. for all their products, so the jigsaws, yeah. So one of their one of their puzzles that I really want, it's awesome. It looks it's called the Infinity Puzzle. Kind of looks like a Milky Way, but it doesn't really have one way that you can put it together. It it's no uh, edge. It has no edge, no oh fixed shape, God. no starting point. <laughs> How do you it, start? It can, so I, it, I, you just I don't you know. start. You see just, if you can click pieces just, together and build off of it. 
Right, exactly. I mean, you know, the pieces all you can fit that all of them really together, cool. but you can fit them. Yeah. So it says, uh, and this is from their website. It says topologically, the Infinite Galaxy puzzle maps to a Klein bottle, an impossible three D shape where the inside and outside are mathematically indistinguishable. What this means is that it tiles with a flip. Pieces from the right side mm-hmm. attached to the left side, but only after flipping over. Just like the Klein's bottle surface has no inside or outside, this puzzle has no up or down side. You can oh, start the man. puzzle anywhere on any side, making it extra challenging. So there must be like a there must be like a um like a series of different jigsaws that will lock together, but like you only have like like there's two or three options for each jigsaw somewhere else in another piece, right? Something like that. Like, it's not like you could really build, you could really build it anyway, as long as you can find like where those algorithms fit together. Right. Exactly. And they have a couple different examples of this. They have ones that kind of look like a coral reef that I think is based off of, you know, some aquatic life form. They have puzzles that like one of the pieces actually looks like a virus. Like if you see like a, you know, depiction of like a, virus or an amoeba and so some of the like jigsaw pieces are different um kind of shapes that actually represent something the the actual shape of the piece that's really Um, cool it's really cool so another company that does this very well that only does puzzles is called artifact puzzles and they they're on the west coast they're at they call themselves an artisanal puzzle company um Mm. and so they probably make sourdough bread (laughs) just for fun just for pleasure um so they sell laser cut uh wooden jigsaw puzzles very similar to uh the nervous system but the artwork for theirs is i mean it's unbelievable and their puzzles i mean they're you know they're i think in the 80 dollar range for some of them the 50 dollar range they're freaking nice i mean they're like you know, a conversation piece, a gift piece. They come in these nice, I really want one. <laughs> They're really cool looking. I wanted to ask you actually, what do you do when you're done? Cause I remember like as a kid doing puzzles, we would, we would like mount them on cardboard and stuff, but like, do you guys display them at all? Or is no, it just like I back don't. in the box? I, so <laughs> I feel like, I feel like, you know, we uh, look at it a couple times like we look at it for a while and we're like ah and then i like to put my hands over it it's it's kind of satisfying to touch the top surface of a puzzle after it's put together it doesn't sound we- i mean it it does sound weird but and it's not as weird get as it the sounds. broom honey <laughs> and <laughs> knocking then, this off the table and then we uh and, we, and it's just as fun to take it apart you just kind of lift it up take it apart back in the box because it I is mean, like done- a real accomplishment to put something like that together you know and like I know, like, you probably think of a puzzle as just like, well, some people might think of a puzzle as like, oh, it's just like a toy, you know. But I can really see the artistry in completing this, like, crazy infinity puzzle. And then you have this amazing piece of artwork. I mean, there could be, like, some legit argument for making a display out of that. Yeah, no, absolutely. But I, I, you know, there's, um, funny that you mentioned that. I I am going to talk about somebody later that does, make a puzzle more of a permanent piece. And I do, you know, I'm not opposed to uh, displaying puzzles. And that's also something that I did when I was a kid. Um, But for us, you know, 
living full time travel trailer. Like we we just like to do a puzzle on the table for fun. It's just kind of like an ongoing pleasure project. And then for us, it's back in the box. But I mean, if you're doing um, a puzzle that's like two thousand pieces plus, like that is that is definitely an accomplishment for sure. But I also think you're kind of hitting that line between like like putting together a puzzle. You are not an artist. You're just somebody that's bored that wants to, you know, exercise their mind and focus on something. And uh, and it kind of makes you feel like an artist because you're like, oh, look, this piece of art just shattered all over the place. I better <laughs> take some time and put it back together. So it does give you that same sense of an a- accomplishment like you built this thing. But I mean, you know, it's really, I think, the artistry, the craftsmanship goes into creating Certainly, and making it, you know, making making people want to spend their time putting together this thing, and that's that's the artistry you'd be displaying. For sure, not not saying, "Hey, look what I painted," but you're displaying, you know, like the engineering and the art that is printed on it. Right, and I think with especially like with the artifact puzzles, with those nice wooden puzzles. Um, I actually think of my dad's house. He has one. It might be an artifact puzzle. It might be a local puzzle company, but he has a wooden jigsaw puzzle that's displayed. I mean, it's beautiful. And a puzzle like that, I could totally see putting on the wall. But I, I think you could also make the argument for, you know, wanting someone else to enjoy putting it, putting it together too. You know, and you can put together a puzzle multiple times, and it's still fun because you know, yeah, a puzzle sits in your drawer for two years you're not really going to remember like that's true. putting it together strategy. Like you develop the same strategies of, you know, starting at the borders and then maybe with some puzzles you might organize colors or with some puzzles you might look for some text to put together. I mean, you definitely like, it is an interesting, almost like a mindfulness meditation exercise to notice what common themes come up with just like natural strategies because your brain will just figure out because you're just like oh god all these pieces all over the place all right where do you start and like starting with the border is a very common and easy strategy that i think most people do but after that it kind of depends on the puzzle i imagine you would get like almost like a like a speed reading style where you um where you let your mind just kind of go blank and scan the the table until you pick up different, uh, like different patterns, different colors, and you just right. eventually bring them all together. I th- I think it's a really interesting um, experience for me personally. I mean, I am very easily distracted, and I I don't know if that's because it, uh, of me and the way that my brain is wired. I have a suspicion that you know, the, the, this world that we're living in, especially this generation that kind of grew up more with the internet and with like quick ads, quick posts, you know, quick kind of sound bites. I have a feeling that whatever short attention span that I possibly have because of me has kind of been exacerbated by, you know, the short attention span entertainment world that we live in. And there's something about puzzles that I feel like I can really focus and not get distracted. And like, I make this joke to Brie all the time that I'm getting like puzzle back or like getting puzzled, like descending into puzzle madness. Cause I will just work on a puzzle for hours. I mean, it's, it really draws me in. 
I could see how you just want to like get back to it, like when you're out on a run or riding your bike. You're like, oh man, we're really about to make a breakthrough in this part. I really <laughs> want to get back there and get it back is, in the it's, zone. It it is it's a little bit addictive. Um, so before I wrap up with the off top, I don't feel like any discussion about puzzles would be complete without talking about some of the world's largest puzzles because it's just always interesting. Uh, so Ravensburger has a memorable Disney moments puzzle. That's 40,320 pieces. Oh my God. How could you ever do that? That's like a, know. that's like a Insanity. thing where you bring everyone out to the town square to work on it. Yeah. <laughs> Actually, um, the record jigsaw puzzle. Now th- this one, I don't believe is like commercially available. So this was really, uh, I suspect just designed to uh, get the Guinness Book of World Records deal, and but it was five hundred and fifty-one thousand two hundred thirty-two pieces, and it was completed by sixteen hundred students uh, at a uh, University of Economics. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, forty-eight like college feet project, by seventy-six feet, huge. What um, was that? What was the image on it? I'm not sure what that one was. All uh, white. All just all white. Um, one of my favorite ones that's kind of always in this like uh, uh, biggest jigsaw puzzle lists that you'll find it's called life the great challenge and it's just really beautiful it's got like different animals and different things on it that all kind of morph together it's kind of a trippy uh, just like a, all the puzzle tropes in one puzzle but all it's kind of like a meta thing but there's a story about this uh, woman who took 17 months to not only complete this gigantic puzzle, but glued it on her living room wall. <laughs> oh, there you to go. To display it. Yeah. So, well, what what are mean, some of the puzzle tropes? What's a... Uh, I don't know. Balloons, animals, cities, like mm, things yeah. with contrast, detail, and they'll like kind of trick you sometimes because they'll be like... You know, um, a lot of uh, Eric Dowdle's puzzles will have, like, American flags, but they'll have, like, a big American flag over here, a little American flag over here, a little... So you can't just put all the American flags together because they show up in a couple different places. Totally. So, I mean, there's you'll see some, like, common themes among puzzles. You know, landscapes are pretty common, too. Um, but, yeah, if you look up... Uh, I mean, if, if, if I were to do... If I were to take, you know, 300 hours, 600 hours, whatever, to do a puzzle... Uh, life, the great challenge would be, uh, would be a pretty good one, but yeah, I mean, I feel bad that I brought this up because everybody wants a puzzle right now and literally all puzzles are out of stock, but really quick, I got a hot quarantine tip for you. Find your favorite piece of art in your home. It can be a photograph. It can be something large. It can be a family portrait. Some of your precious family pictures that you like. Now, carefully cut whatever item you choose into little small pieces shaped like jigsaw puzzle pieces. Make sure every single piece is different. That's very important. And boom, homemade puzzle. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> <laughs> that I can see that working, yeah. Make sure whatever it is, though, you only have one of it. That's <laughs> so you have to put it back together. That's right. You'd probably display that on your wall after you finish it. (laughs) Here's the picture of my grandma that we ruined. (laughs) 
All right. So it's pretty awesome. Circuit. Yeah, man. What have you added? Uh, so something I watched recently was the new Pixar movie, Onward. Yeah. Very, very good. Uh, for some reason, I feel like I cried more watching Onward than any other Pixar movie. And it wasn't my fa- it wasn't my favorite Pixar movie, but I mean all Pixar movies kind of tie for first. I mean they're so good. But this one just seemed to make me like really strangely emotional a few times. It's just a kind of a great like adventure story, but it's also interesting that it was launched on Disney Plus. I mean it's like the fir- one of the first big budget wave movies. of the future, man. I am not going to be able to go back. Right, it's pretty crazy. How about we you? Watched, well, we watched Trolls. My daughter loves Trolls. So we watched Trolls World Tour, which was the same thing, launched on all streaming platforms. Oh, that you know, looks and- like the uh, shitty version of Onward. <laughs> well, I mean, <laughs> it's surprisingly Justin Timberlake's got some bangers, all right? But that's not, uh, that's not, that's like not what Taylor I want to talk Swift. about. Something in... So I, I developed this uh, this concept for Netflix called the Netflix action trilogy. And right now I've only found the first two movies in it. So, you know, if anyone has any ideas for a third action trilogy that could possibly round out my, or a third action movie that could round out my Netflix action trilogy, just a message us on uh, Facebook or Instagram at the content clearinghouse with ideas. Cause I'm looking for the third one. Nice uh, social media plug. Yeah, you like that? That was, that was uh, smooth until very I organic. It up. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so the first one is Triple Frontier, which is uh, this was released a few months back. It's with Ben Affleck and Charlie Hunnam from uh, from uh, Sons of Anarchy. But it's it's like this. All these like ex military guys are going to do this drug heist, like to to steal all this this drug money. And then it's about how that mission goes awry and them trying to get like over the Andes triple frontier. It's like a reference in South America where the, you know, where three countries come together and it's near the Andes. So it's them trying to get up over that and everything that goes wrong. So, you know, I've definitely Affleck, scrolled by that dude. It's so it, good. I'll have to watch that. Ben Affleck plays like he gets such a bad rap, but he plays such a great unhinged person. And plus, it's got you know our He's playing himself. Yep, our fa- <laughs> our fan favorite Pedro Pascal from The Mandalorian. Except you get to see oh, his yeah. face in this one. Nice. So that's the first movie. The second movie just came out, which is Extraction with uh, Chris Hemsworth. And uh, this is it was written by Joe Russo from the Avengers, uh, Infinity War, and Endgame fame. But I mean, it's it's got this great like John Wick style fighting. I'm seeing some people bag it online for having like a weak story, which is fair. I mean, the story isn't fantastic, but the action is just like it's nonstop. It's perfectly choreographed. It's probably got the best takedown gun takedown I've ever seen in a movie. So those are the those are the first two, and I'm just hunting now for my third. So, so anyone, these are not let me know. these are not related. These are just really good action movies that you found, and they happen to both be on Netflix. Well, they're trying to create Netflix a originals. Of them. Oh, a yeah. Netflix original. Gotcha. So I'm looking for a third. That's a very uh, good idea. And maybe it's not out yet, but it'll be out soon. Hopefully, please <laughs> Netflix. Uh, and then Brett, I know you're gonna love this. I finally, finally took your suggestion and started watching Community. And you were right, buddy. <laughs> it is so good. 
but I knew I was going to love it in the beginning when Joel McHale, who's like the, uh, he's the star of the show. He plays Jeff when he popped up and I was like, is that Ryan Seacrest? And then like almost immediately they start calling him Ryan Seacrest. It's like, Oh man, this writing is so good. It really is. It's got great character development. I mean, it's like a character driven comedy with just like super outlandish, like situations. It's fantastic. What's crazy is that it's also a Russo brothers production. Like, they made this. They also made Arrested Development. Like when I saw that, I was like, "WT fuck Russo Brothers, you guys make everything." Like the the finest action movies and the greatest comedy. But something. Yeah. So there was a joke in this show, which I'm sure you remember. It's in the first episode uh, when they, or a second episode where they call this guy Starburns, and he's got sideburns oh, shaped yeah. like stars. So oh, that yeah. got me thinking because I listened to this podcast network starburns audio i mean they they host some of some of my favorite shows and uh i looked it up and it's owned by dan Harmon. so oh it's such a small world and i, I knew that so was like funny starburns was way too specific of a reference for it to be anything else so i wasn't surprised when i found that but uh wow. yeah starburns audio some other uh some other great content there a lot of a lot of awesome shows i mean like listen to everything we have first and then if you have time go listen to them but you know, it's a good, it's a good filler. I'll have to check that out. I, you know, we were talking on the last episode kind of about this like uh, link between content and the creators of content and how we all just seemed, I mean, we all just seem constantly obsessed with knowing about the people behind the entertainment that we like. um, And we just can't seem to really separate them very much but dan Harmon is the perfect example of something like community where it's just it there's something so special about it and so funny about it and so unique and it just really stands out i mean it has a cult following for a reason it really is excellent and you know i'd be sitting there kind of binge watching it right now and i'm reading like uh, ask me anything on the reddit forums uh, just like Dan Harmon interviews and finding out what else he's created and things that I, I, I people keep recommending to me. Uh, Rick and Morty is one of them where I tried to watch a couple episodes. It's like, this is not my type of humor. But now that I know that Dan Harmon created it, it makes me want to watch it because I, I just think anything he works with, anything that he does is going to be excellent. Yeah, it's, I mean, I wasn't like I said. I wasn't surprised to see Starburns Audio was associated with him because the stuff they have on there, the content is so good. And yeah, like this makes me want to go watch Rick and Morty. Also, just after seeing, I, I know right now I'm going to watch every single episode of Community. I'm I'm at four episodes in. I'm already sold on it because it's just so dang good. It's really good. So, so season, I, do I think it's that. season three. Is it's either season three or season four? I think it's season three where it kind of dips down the quality scale just a little bit or it just doesn't kind of feel right and uh you know you'll find out that it's or maybe you'll find out right now from me that dan Harmon left the show for that season uh i think he was like fired kicked off i don't know the the politics and the drama but um, i mean i really do think whatever special sauce it has besides the fantastic cast uh, is is the creator and and uh, just like the something special, man. It's a great show. Probably the money guy saying, 
hey, uh, we really like the way this last two seasons are going. We'd appreciate if season three sucked ass. So why don't you get lost, guy that created this? You know, every season it was uh, about to be canceled. Every single season. And I think it's only now. I'm so happy to see it on Netflix again because I, have, I haven't seen it in a very long time. I th- It's an old show. I mean, I think it's over 10 years old when it first came out, 11 years old maybe. But uh, now it's on Netflix and we can all watch it. We can all binge it. And I think it's going to find a huge audience because I think it's always been kind of like a fringe. You know, it's had its fringe fans, but I think it's going to go mainstream as it should because mm. it's excellent. I'm in on it. Sweet. Well, let's take a quick break. And when we get back, we're going to get into some content. Ooh, content. The Content Clearinghouse is brought to you by Best Maps Ever. They make checklist posters for outdoor adventurers who want to see it all. If you want to visit every national park in the United States, climb every 14er in Colorado, or ski every slope in New England, Best Maps Ever posters are the perfect way to track and inspire your quest. Every map is lovingly designed with icons marking each location so you can stick a pin in the icon or color it in with a marker as you check off the areas you've been to. They offer mounting and framing services for maps that are ready for pinning right out of the box, or if you prefer to mount the map yourself, there are tips on the website to help you with that. They have a slew of maps relating to protected areas and public lands like state parks, national forests, and even more obscure maps like the National Wild and Scenic Rivers system. So Josh, one of the maps my wife and I have mounted in our camper is the National Parks map. Now it's covered in pins because, well, you know, Bree and I get around. And Best Maps Ever makes our gallivanting around the country even more fun because we can put a pin in the map to prove that we've been there and done that. No one could ever cheat that system, Brett. Well, it is on the honor system. Best Maps Ever does not employ any sort of pin-related security system that will come to your house and check and see if you've actually visited the places you've pinned. <gasps> Since you brought it up, I have uh, the skydiving drop zone map hanging up in my office. It's one of the few decorations I have that's not celebrating one of my many athletic achievements. In fact, it's hanging up on the wall right next to my world's most humble man trophy. For all your cartographic needs, visit bestmapsever.com. They've got the best maps ever. Clear it out. Welcome back to the Content Clearinghouse. Josh, tell me, I heard you watch something. <laughs> Ooh, nice lead in. That was yeah. terrible. You know I watched something. <laughs> I've been doing nothing but watching something this last week. Uh, I want to talk about today. I think it's the most inspiring documentary I've ever seen. Uh, It's called Valley Uprising. It's available right now on Prime. And I know I talked to you earlier. You said you have not seen this. That's fantastic, though, because I get to I get to introduce you to it, and I love it so much. So, uh, Valley Uprising is a 2014 film by Peter Mortimer and Nick Rawson, and it is the story of the origins of big wall rock climbing in America. And how this rivalry between these two visionaries, uh, one Royal Robbins and Warren Harding, inspired generations of adventurers and rock climbers. I mean, these guys essentially created the world of big wall rock climbing. So watching this film, and I've watched this so many times, but watching it from the comfort of my 21st century house with all the amenities 
I could ever want. It makes me want the dirtbag lifestyle so much. It makes it seem so appealing. And that's those aren't my words. This is what they call it in the documentary, the dirtbag lifestyle. It's just right. the camping, yeah, sure. the climbing, being unsure of your future. And the way they present it, it's never looked more beautiful than it does in Valley Uprising. So this takes place... Uh, the beginning of the story, I mean, it's it's mostly focused around Yosemite. And the part I'm going to be really talking about today is really just the first f- fourth to maybe half of the documentary, because I definitely want to leave something for people that want to go watch it. But uh, the beginning of the story takes place in Yosemite, and it's really about how these guys having these ideas and these these visions for rock climbing and what they're competitive nature did to push like future generations to go out and to make it become what it what it is now so they have this really cool description of royal robbins he was kind of like the gentleman rock climber you know he really had a lot of uh had like a lot of aesthetic ideas about what rock climbing should be and how it should be performed and they describe him in this documentary as a proto-beatnik, hard at work reading the classics. And they show all these pictures of him sitting in uh, Camp 4, which was like home base in Yosemite for climbing these big walls, like reading like The Great Gatsby. And just, he's like this, you know, he's just like this intelligent dude who just kind of cut away from the world and went out and just dedicated his life to climbing. And his rival, Warren Harding, he was more of like this renegade, this rough and tumble climber. He was like a uh, a construction worker, basically just to make money, and then spent the rest of his time in Yosemite. In Yosemite, and he wanted to essentially like just accomplish his goals, no matter what the cost was. So there is this like this bashing of heads together, and what comes out of their rivalry is the creation of two different types of climbing. So Royal Robbins with his his ideas about what you should do, what kind of trace you should leave, which is essentially nothing at all. He kind of pioneered traditional climbing, which is using protective gear, but only when you need it and removing it as you go, no permanent bolts. And right. essentially when you're done, making it seem like you've never been there. Right, Warren, right. Warren Harding, on the other hand, he was he pioneered aid climbing, which is essentially using anything necessary to get up the wall, drilling holes, installing permanent bolts, using ladders, ropes, uh, basically anything that he could pull up the wall to help him get up a rock face. That's what he was doing. So you can imagine like someone like Royal Robbins with his ideas about the world being left better than you find it did not agree with Warren Harding's uh, approach to rock climbing. And they were there at right. the same time. So caused a lot of issues. That is a very different uh, climbing philosophy. And I, I kind of know which, which uh, technique won out in the end, but w- can you get like, what year was this? When were these guys like active in climbing? So this was the early fifties. Okay. And I mean, they're, their battle went on for you know twenty something years, but it's interesting that you mention about which one won out in the end because essentially both of them, trad climbing and aid climbing, they're both completely legitimate climbing styles that are used today, but they're just used for different purposes. Like aid climbing is 
you know, it seems more utilitarian, you know, it's, it might be something like what you see like a film crew using or in other climbing documentaries I've seen, they'll do these like staged pushes up these walls and they'll use a mix of traditional and aid climbing, you know, traditional climbing to do like the actual push to get up the pitch, which is what they call, you know, one rope length. So to get up one pitch, they'll use completely traditional techniques, but once they complete that pitch, they may have a base camp further down on the wall that they'll rappel down to and then, you know, use aid climbing the next day, just climbing straight up the rope to get mm-hmm. back to their starting point for the next push. So they both have I, their I, uses. Isn't it? Yeah. But I, I feel like, um, see, and I do not know about the world of climbing, but I, I do feel like there's um, they're getting away from like leaving bolts i I guess there's still permanent protect protection in the rock that people will use that but i don't think people are like drilling into uh you know national park uh cliff faces anymore are they well i mean you know i couldn't really speak to that you know because I, i also have no personal connection to climbing so it's interesting that like that this is so intriguing to me which i'll get into why but uh, I couldn't really answer that question because I I don't participate in this sport. And yeah, most sports either. like this that I don't participate in, they typically hold almost no interest for me, which is why I think climbing is like it's such a special thing. And it's so inspiring to me. What about curling? You're not interested in curling? Oh, no, that's something that I'm I'm rated third in the world, buddy. Okay, I yep. see. I'm sure you've seen my Facebook page. I've seen that. Yeah, I've seen that trophy yep. next to the world's most humble man trophy. <laughs> That's where it is. <laughs> yep. So uh, El Capitan features prominently in all of these climbing documentaries, and it's kind of set up as the gauntlet against which all significant climbing challenges in America are measured against, which makes sense because it's you know it's one of the largest walls I think in the world. I know it's up there for largest wall in America, but. It seems that uh, this standard for climbing El Cap was set in the 50s by Royal Robbins and Warren Harding in their battles. You know, uh, Warren Harding was the first person to summit El Cap, but according to Royal Robbins, he did it in this unrespectable manner. You know, he used too many bolts, too many assists. It took him 18 months to climb up the up the wall. So he would go up and down, up and down, just leaving permanent equipment. And that totally just pissed off Royal Robbins because his idea, you know, it's like, if you can't do it right, you shouldn't do it at all. So once See, I, I, I do, I, I like that approach, but it's not, if you climb that wall, even with all the help, I mean, if you got somebody, if you got a Sherpa that climbs it and you're just hanging onto his back, uh, you still made it to the top. You know what I mean? I mean, it's like if we have some technology on the future that we can get to the moon, uh, without burning rocket fuel, say, and then we would never look back and say like, oh, the first people on the moon didn't really do it because they they used equipment that's dirty. You know what I'm saying? I, I mean, know. I totally agree. You know, it's not. I don't think that Warren Harding's accomplishment is really discounted by anyone other than these guys in Roy Robinson's right. camp that was there. You know, yeah. because now it's seen as like what you're saying without him doing it first, it would have still lived in the realm of impossibility. Right, right. And 
you know, Royal Robbins had these ideas, how things needed to be done. So once it was proven to him that it was climbable, because he believed that El Cap was not climbable, once it was proven, he went back and did it the right way, and he did it in just one week. So without Warren Harding pushing the boundaries forward, that I mean, that may nev- never have happened or just taken years and years to ever happen. So his accomplishment is certainly groundbreaking and means something. But on the way up, um, well, for Royal's climb, he went back and did it with no bolts. He did it, you know, in his own respectable way. And through doing that, he and proved more badass that, way. Yeah, I mean, and more dangerous arguably, way. Yeah, and he proved yeah. that it's possible to do, to yeah. go up there and you know, not climb your rope, not climb your ladder, and actually just use handholds on the wall and to do it in a realistic time frame. You know, this eighteen month climb down to one week. I mean, that's a that's a huge jump as far as skill level and as as far as pushing the envelope for human achievement. You know, that's a that's a very big leap. Wow. That's insane. So there, you know, that that rivalry lasted until the mid seventies and it really culminated with, uh, them both climbing this wall on El Cap, which is called the Don wall. Uh, anyone that's familiar with climbing documentaries has heard of the Don wall. It's basically the first, the first location on El Cap that the light hits in the morning. So this entire, you know, half of the, of the wall is lit up early morning by the, uh, by the sunrise. And it's been, it's been kind of heralded as this extremely difficult climbing wall with very, uh, very small handholds and not a lot of place to play, uh, not a lot of places for protection. So their battle kind of culminated in them both climbing the Don, the Don Wall. And what was strange was at the end of climbing the Don Wall, they both seemed to drop out of the the climbing scene entirely. You know, one of the, one of these things I learned from watching just as an aside watching like one of these climbing documentaries. Cause e- even though I don't participate in the sport, like, like you, uh, I, we, I've gone to many, many Banff film festivals, the traveling film festival. And, uh, you know, there's ski videos, their mountain culture videos. There's, it's just an incredible experience. I recommend it to anybody, uh, but there's a lot of climbing. And one of the things that I learned that I'd never thought of is these uh, free solo climbers that are putting their hand into this hole and like a snake pops out or a giant spider pops out. I'm like, what, what the heck, man? Like just to add on to everything else, the one place that you need to put your hand to survive and not fall off a cliff, you know, a thousand feet down. And there's like a, a scary creature in there that wants to bite you. And it it's has a crazy sport has really more of a right to be there than you ever do. So it's like, <laughs> y- you can't even be mad about it for, you know, intruding on your climb because it's like, Oh, this is where this thing lives. You know, if this thing wants to bite you right now. It's completely in the right to do so. Oh, you're sounding, uh, like you're a follower of, uh, animism and not much of a humanist there, but sound like a tarantula apologist. <laughs> so it's it is i mean you're not wrong you're not wrong it's interesting you bring up free solo because uh free solo evolved out of uh the generation after royal royal robbins and warren harding 
So the generation that came after them, they called themselves the Stone Masters. And with Ooh. them, they brought the, the beginnings of free soloing, which Alex Honnold is so famous for. And according, wow. to, according to Valley Uprising, uh, a climber named John Backer, he was one of the original pioneers of free solo. And as you can imagine, the intro of something as dangerous as free solo also brings to this documentary a sense of tragedy. You know, it's really like the ultimate dark cloud on any kind of dangerous pursuit like this. As the envelope gets pushed, you're going to lose people who may be the visionaries in this sport. And I really, I really feel like action sports, they're full of these tragic undertones. And I honestly don't think they'd be the same without it. You know, I would love for people that participate in these sports and people I know to not die. But, you know, the the tragedy and loss, it creates this sense of mythology in these sports that makes the, the participants respect it more. And facing your own mortality, it's like it's such an important part of being human and feeling those losses is a way that helps people grow up. It's, it's sad that that mythology and that personal growth resides on the backs of the people that come before you and the people that die doing these things, but it is an inarguable part of action sports. It's almost like someone has to make like a sacrifice to the activity in a way. Yeah, it's very unfortunate, but it's also, I, th- I think that that mythology and the tragedy and the sense of loss that comes with something like climbing or base jumping or skydiving, you know, it's, it's not something that you think is ever going to happen to you, but it is something that draws a certain kind of person, the kind of person that's maybe willing to put things a little bit further out past the line than some normal folk. And that's like, that's what keeps pushing these things into the realm of, uh, you know, unimaginable human accomplishment. I, I love it. I, I would like to think that we all have that inside of us. I mean, we all are willing to take risks. It's just whatever that threshold is, is, is different for, uh, you know, different people. And I think, you know, I think of like a free solo climber, like they do not have a death wish. They are not suicidal. Like they, they have a life wish. I mean, they want to live their life to the fullest of their capabilities. They want to achieve great things. And, you know, even if that means putting themselves in potentially harm's way, I mean, I really respect that for sure. I mean, it is, uh, you know, when I watch these like free solo videos, I, my whole body, every muscle is tensed. It's not something I personally would want to do. Um, but my God, it is a spectacle. And I, I really do think it's incredible, like an incredible athletic pursuit. Yeah, it's absolutely amazing. It's, it's so fascinating and you don't need to know anything about climbing to appreciate this stuff. So For sure. John Backer, the pioneer of free solo, his his work really laid the groundwork for what Alex Honnold accomplished in the award-winning, Oscar-winning 2018 film Free Solo, which chronicled his 2017 ropeless ascent up the 3,200-foot wall of El Cap. And it's, it's kind of a discussion for a different day because we're not here to talk about free solo, but it's hard to talk about any climbing documentary without bringing it up. And uh, something that's interesting in that movie is uh, the cameraman's take. Jimmy Chin, who is, he's the, he's the filmmaker from Free Solo. He's also this extremely accomplished climber in his own right. He's one of the foremost climbing filmmakers in the world. In Free Solo, 
he's torn between wanting to create the film and not wanting to encourage Alex Honnold to free solo El Cap for the film. So the cameramen are all worried that they may be recording his last day. And, and, you know, they have these debates about like, you know, should we, should we tell him that, yeah, we're ready to go film you or should we discourage him and, you know, not push him to do this thing? Cause it's just, it seems so impossible. And wow. It's pr- probably tough too. Cause they're also friends. Like it's not like exactly. Jimmy Chin is this, you know, totally objective journalist. That's just there to capture a moment and tell the public a story. Like, I mean, he is, he is filming a documentary that features the world's best climber who also is his friend. So I can just imagine like different layers of conflict. That's really interesting. Jeez. Yeah. And you know, they've been climbing for years. It's like he, they're friends before, probably before they're even climbers, you know, like if you took climbing out of the equation, they would probably still be friends. And it really puts into perspective how serious and danger the pursuit is, yeah. you know, like the way these guys talk about it is like just going up on the wall at all is this huge commitment and undertaking what they did in free solo, you know, it's up there with like the top human athletic achievements that have ever been accomplished both physically and mentally. That's really, I mean, that's all an aside, you know, it's, it just kind of puts into perspective what the stone masters brought to climbing and specifically John Backer. Wow. So people see, I think from what I've experienced, people see these pursuits as like the acts of children, you know, it, it doesn't seem like you're really, you're really progressing towards being adult when you're spending your entire life climbing or skydiving. But I know what? (laughs) <laughs> that's i mean this is for people that don't do it right okay but you i mean you and i know you may be sarcastic right now but i know i've experienced so much personal growth and personal loss that has shaped me into the adult and the human that i am today oh i just yeah i mean i i don't see it as like childish pursuits at all i mean i it's because you're I, a fan of course, I yeah. am a fan, and I just can't believe that anybody wouldn't wouldn't be a fan and would look at it as like a frivolous uh, kind of pursuit. Like I, I think this is the you know whatever human nature, whatever special quality we have that literally makes us build rocket ships and fly into space. I mean, whatever that urge is to be curious and to push ourselves is like it's being displayed in its most obvious clear form. And I, I mean, that's, I, that's being human is pushing things forward and doing amazing things. And so, I, I mean, I applaud it. And I think, I, you know, I think the, the people that uh, make a lifestyle and make a living pursuing action sports are heroes. I mean, that's I my perspective. Superheroes. Superheroes. You know, that, it's, it's also why, you know, like that, that like, search for personal growth. It's also why like in sports like this, there's such this party culture, you know, it's, it's kind of like this, it's like this dichotomy. that's impossible for some to rectify if you haven't lived a life like this, but it's important to see docs like this because it gives you a glimpse into the lifestyle from the outside. And you see that it's not just about fucking off and doing drugs. You know, it really is about like breaking free, but there is, you know, there is like this drug element to extreme sports and drugs get a bad rap because they ruin lives. But I really do believe that, uh, you know, athletes like these can be these great thinkers and 
whenever there's something, you know, there's like this party element to an extreme sport and you see, you know, people imagine like, oh, skydivers are just like smoking weed, jumping out of airplanes, they don't have jobs. But really like these are the people that are like the modern day philosophers, you know, and I don't believe that that would be the same without all the partying. You know, it's not about escaping reality. It's about enhancing and learning what human experience can be. And the novelty of expanding one's perspective, I mean, it really goes hand in hand with pushing your physical boundaries. Yeah, maybe. I mean, I, I think there's plenty of um, athletes and action sports enthusiasts that can pursue those activities that, you know, don't need to do any chemical enhancement. But I mean, I have seen that it is something that um, tends to like risk risky things are, are attractive to a certain type of person, whether it's, uh, you know, altering your consciousness or jumping out of an airplane. I mean, I've seen that firsthand. Absolutely. Sure. And it's not, you know, but I don't think not, it, it's not some kind of prerequisite. Absolutely not. Like that's not what I'm saying. I'm just saying that, you know, people see it as going hand in hand and those two things do kind of walk side by side. They're not requirement. You know, they're not like bedfellows. They don't have to both be there, but there is a reason why people that are searching for these, you know, these physical challenges also tend to lean that way occasionally. Yeah, I can see that for sure. I mean, if you're, especially at a place like uh, Yosemite too, I mean, it, that you're, I just feel like you're, you always, you already have this kind of like anti-authority mentality, I mean, you know, with this, with some other action sports, like they're a little bit more um, defined, I guess, or that you know, you can you can do like a risky action sport and still be kind of painted within the lines. Uh, but when you're climbing big walls that nobody's ever climbed before, I mean, you're you're almost like sticking it to the man in a way. <laughs> like you are like way outside the norm. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, and then. You know, the reason I bring this up is because in the documentary, they talk about this one group, uh, these guys within the Stone Masters that were climbing the walls, doing acid. And they're like, it's like part of this guy's ritual, you know, like these people climbing the walls, you get the guy to drop acid if you're going to climb with Jerry Bridwell. It's just like the most, <laughs> <Do you insane>. <laughs> I mean, during this era, that was like, if you wanted to climb with this guy, that's what you were doing. And they, the I mean, 1970s were a special time. It they sounds definitely like. were. Yep. <laughs> I actually do know somebody that took psychedelics and base jumped. I can't remember if it was L Cap or Half Dome. I won't say any names, obviously, but this person, um, I think, jumped uh, both of those. And base jumping in a national park is highly illegal, but still, uh, still a very attractive thing to do. But, but yeah, combining. A uh, illegal big wall base jump and psychedelic drugs is uh, it's uh, quite a move. <laughs> so it's interesting. Like it's interesting. <laughs> you bring up base jumping because you know they do uh, in the documentary. There's a big part about Dean Potter, and he was he was kind of like the bad boy of uh, the next generation. Like I'd say it's kind of like our generation of climbers. He was pushing new evolutions in Yosemite. I mean, this was like in the early to the early 2000s into the, into the, uh, the tens. And he was like evolving speed climbing, which is, you know, climbing the walls as fast as you can. You know, Warren Harding took 18 months to climb El Cap. 
Royal Robbins climbed it in a week. Potter climbed it in a couple of hours. And he like he pushed all these evolutions and he eventually brought base jumping to climbing. He developed this technique called free base, which oh, was yeah. uh, parachute protected climbing. Oh geez. And so have you seen some of those videos? Oh yeah. They have video of <laughs> For the it listeners out there, you need <laughs> to see. I mean, it 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 just looks wrong. I mean, like base jumping looks right. It looks so intentional. Free solo climbing even looks like it makes sense when you're watching it. When you see free base, you see these guys climbing these big walls. And really, the irony is the lower to the ground you are, the you're more in danger. Definitely. It's, you know, that first like couple hundred feet, whoo, like you're sweating it. Once you're like, you know, I don't know, 600 feet, 500 feet or plus, And these guys, you're, you know, they're on these multiple thousands feet, foots, whatever, these huge walls. But you see them just like fall off almost and uh, it just looks wrong man it looks like you're about to watch a person die and they open up a parachute and they fly away like dean Potter said he wanted to take the worst thing that could happen which was falling off of the cliff and turn it into the best thing that could happen which is fly <laughs> and that's really cool <laughs> i mean he eventually also brought wingsuit flying to the valley there which unfortunately uh Dean Potter died in a wingsuit accident in 2005 or 2015, excuse yeah. me, which is yeah. not not chronicled in this in this documentary. Uh, we will link some uh, some articles about it though. But you know, it's like again, I'm like torn about wingsuit base jumping because I love watching it, but it takes some of the most amazing athletes and humans on the planet, and you know, it's very hard to rationalize those two the two sides of the same coin. It's just. Yeah just more evidence that the mountains are beautiful yet unforgiving you know they're like the ultimate human testing ground now have you been to yosemite national park i have not so i i do have to say it's one of those places that um it it kind of transcends any sort of explanation or photograph i mean it really is one of those places where you're like oh this is this is way better uh, and just like way more awe inspiring or striking than I could have possibly imagined. It's like seeing the Grand Canyon. Like when you see the Grand Canyon for the first time, you're just kind of, your mind is kind of blown. Yosemite, you're, you're, it's just such a like thin valley and the cliffs are just so prominent and so steep and they don't really look like mountains. I mean, they just, they look like these, you know, it's something to do with the granite or whatever, right? I'm not a geologist. I'm a contentologist. Okay, <laughs> that you but are, it, dude. It is it is unbelievable. And we've camped there. We've taken our airstream in there, and we've done some hiking there. I mean, even just like a simple hike there. I can't remember if it was like Yosemite Falls or you know some popular day hike that we did there. But uh, I mean, it you know the I feel like the one downside to Yosemite and Yellowstone, two very popular national parks, is their popularity. Um, I mean, it can be. It can be a little bit of a psychological challenge, not like climbing a big wall, but finding like a camping spot in there, unless you have a reservation way far out and just like putting up with the crowds, depending on if you're there during peak times, but it is absolutely worth a trip to California to see Yosemite. I mean, you just see these cliffs and it takes your breath away. It really does. 
you know, they talk about that in the documentary about how they've had to make regulations of no person can camp more than seven days in the valley there, which, you know, these guys basically have to be there illegally if they want to accomplish their big wall climbing goals. And, you know, that's like, that's part of the documentary. And their acid goals. Exactly. Yeah. Right. Takes a while to get warmed up. (laughs) Um, it's so as a little bit of an aside, I would, I do want to talk to you about one of my brushes with greatness in the climbing world. Uh, when I was teaching people to skydive in 2007, I, uh, trained this, this, uh, woman to skydive named Steph Davis, who I learned, uh, learned later was married to Dean Potter. Uh, I had no idea who she was, but it turns out she is, one of the most famous female climbers in the world, maybe even one of the just f- most famous climbers in general, she is a preeminent free soloist. And she was kind of talking to me a little bit, you know, as we were training, because you're always trying to get to know your your students' stories, you know. And I was just like some 27-year-old dope without being a skydiving instructor was as epic as it got. But, you know, she's telling me about how she would go up to Long's Peak, which is, you know, a 14,000 foot uh, mountain just very near where we used to skydive. And she was climbing every other day, you know, and for like a mortal like me, just the idea of just hiking up there seems like this unbelievable major undertaking. But she's such a superhuman, you know, just getting up there and doing this like five hour hike or whatever it takes. That's just like the travel portion required for her to start her real athletic pursuit, which was climbing. <laughs> so I got to know her pretty well. And then years later, I saw her at this event in Skydive Moab and just chatted her up a bit. And some of the other skydivers were like, you know, Steph Davis. And I was like, I mean, not really. I just taught her to skydive. So I know who she is. And then, you know, everybody's looking at me like, Oh my God, I can't believe you You know who she is and all this stuff. I know her personally. I didn't really even understand then until later I started seeing her in all these climbing movies because I wasn't into climbing at the time. And it's just, it's just so crazy that these people who are accomplishing these superhuman feats, when you get to know them, you know, they are just these people and you start getting like talking to them and understanding their thought process. And you do see that there's, this different thing within their psyche, something that, you know, pushes them with this drive and this focus to go and perform these superhuman feats. It's just, it's just amazing and inspiring to see what other people can do. And it's cool to have these brushes with people like that. She's really cool. So amazing. Exactly here talk about she's, she has like multiple first ascents, like in all these places she's like, and it's really interesting too. Because, you know, there's a lot of good um, skydivers out there. There's a lot of good base jumpers out there. There's a lot of good climbers. But then you get these people, like you were saying, Dean Potter or Steph Davis, that do a lot of action sports, like, very, very well. And so, clearly, it's, you know, it's not like, oh, this one person is, like, just a really good skier and took a knack. No, it is it is something mental. It is something in their mind that is pushing them to want to be great at this activity, some kind of dedication or some kind of like, just like supreme passion and tolerance for pain or, you know, I don't know what it is. Cause like you said, I'm also a mortal and a contentologist, but, um, but man, she's awesome. Makes you worse at action sports. (laughs) 
<laughs> it's sometimes it feels like I'm accomplishing uh, something when I get off the couch and turn Netflix off. So, so that that is uh, that is about as far as I can push myself these days. <laughs> so, let's get back to Valley Uprising. Uh, the remainder of the film it really just kind of delves into the current culture, like we like we mentioned earlier the battle between the rangers and the climbers and what the rangers have to do to enforce the laws and kind of how these guys now are really chasing that vagabond lifestyle and what it takes to try to be like Royal Robbins or like Warren Harding, you know, like Royal Robbins. He spent his early life pushing the sport of climbing forward. He authored two books on the subject uh, of ethical climbing, a book called basic rock craft and a book called advanced rock craft. And those books both espouse his philosophy of climbing with minimal aids and harmony with nature. He founded a successful outdoor clothing line, uh, Royal Robbins LLC. And he was 82 years old at the time of his death in uh, 2017. And wow. again, that's not covered in the documentary because you know this doc came out before that happened. So they have the interviews with him, which is awesome to hear this guy talk. And then people like you know Warren Harding. He was 77 years old at the time of his death, which... Uh, he died in 2002, and it's just so impressive that he lived that long. Because when you hear him discuss his lifestyle, like the hard, back-breaking labor of being a construction worker and the stress of his competitive nature and hard drinking and partying all his life, you know, it's, I really think it's excellent evidence that a childlike approach to the world and your pursuit for adventure and self-discovery, it really does keep a human young. You know, It creates a fire to live within us. And I, th- yeah. I think that's the, that's the value that it really brings that things like this bring to the world. So have anything that. that you want to add before I, uh, before I finish up here? Uh, you know, I just, <clears throat> I just, um, I haven't been participating in action sports in a while and I feel like I've been a little bit lost and I, I just feel like, um, more than sitting on the couch and watching Netflix, Working on this show with you is making me want to go find uh, my passion again for activities like this. I mean, I've been reminded recently of just like some different skydiving adventures we've been on and some different things I used to do that were stupid in skydiving that you'd lecture me on (laughs) to keep me safe. (laughs) I appreciate it, buddy. But no, I just want to say like uh, I, you know, we took the we we took this. um, this, uh, project to talk about how much we love entertainment. And it's really interesting how I feel like it's guiding me back to find another world of, uh, entertaining myself somewhere in the outdoors, maybe out of some airplanes. So we'll, we'll see what happens this summer, buddy. I'm, thank you so much for, uh, bringing another riveting and, and action filled, uh, beatnik, style dirt bag adventure. Hey, Love it. Yeah, man, this is this show has also really inspired me probably cuz can't go outside and do anything. But <laughs> yeah. just thinking about it is like I'm already planning my next adventures and you know to wrap up Valley Uprising, you know, this the feeling of this documentary is this legendary story. You know, it's like being part of an epic that spans generations. I think that's the feeling that any adventurer has at one time been searching for, you know, to try to be part of a story like that. I know it's the same feeling I got being a skydiver and a wind tunnel flyer for the last 20 years, you know, like 
always feeling like I was on the cusp of something great and riding this amazing wave, but not really being able to sure, uh, being able to see where it was taking me since I'm too deep in there and you can't really see out. You know, it's like that my adventure, you know, it started 20 years ago working at this bungee jump park in college, which kind of opened my eyes. And it's just kind of arriving now, six months after I completed a 10 year run as a competitive skydiver, you know, and that adventure, it's on a much smaller scale and hasn't had the world changing ramifications that Royal Robbins and Warren Harding had. But personally, you know, it feels as significant to me. I really think it's the reason to be alive. And I feel blessed to have had these experiences, you know, things like getting to teach people to skydive or getting to watch a satellite launch from 10,000 feet and then doing a night jump with all my friends or being in an airplane that exploded mid-flight, which I'm planning on telling that story in next week's Off Top. You know, these are some of these amazing and unbelievable experience I've had. I think they all can't, they all really pale in comparison to the legendary exploits featured in Valley Uprising. In this movie, and so many others like it, they just chronicle the indomitable human spirit to explore, push boundaries, expand the limits of experience. That's the reason that climbing fascinates me. It's one of the purest forms of human experience. It's this simple endeavor that pits oneself against the majesty and cruel indifference of nature. And like all human endeavors, its boundaries are pushed by competition, but it doesn't require that of its participants. All you need is a will to explore you know, your own limits, your own mind, the very edges of human ability. It's all very inspirational. And I believe films like Valley Uprising have a great deal of offer to anyone with an adventurer's mind. <sighs> Josh, that was beautiful. But we got to wrap up. I, this puzzle's not going to finish itself. <laughs> well, I do want to. I do want to give a little bit of homework. Check out this show. This movie has the greatest intro music, one of the greatest songs. Uh, we couldn't play it here, but check out Broncho. Try me out sometime. We'll link it in the show notes. The show opens and nice. ends with it, and it is a banger. <laughs> is it? Would you say it's like a Taylor Swift banger or like an Oasis banger? It's more like a Justin Timberlake banger, except okay, except okay. nothing like that. Okay. <laughs> Valley Uprising, there it is. Thank you, Josh. That was beautiful, and thank you, listeners. You are beautiful. We are so grateful that you're listening to us talk about our favorite content and other stuff too on the Content Clearinghouse. Remember, you can check us out online. We're on social media, Facebook, Instagram. We would love it if you subscribed to our show, if you reviewed it, if you rated it, if you told your friends about it. It really helps us out. We're a new show. We love you, and we're giving you a social distancing hug over audio. Thank you.